it's sad that many modern Christians are, well, they just seem to be clueless about a very significant time called the Reformation. In fact, how many of you would know all of those people up on the screen there in that title slide called the Reformation? I confess I'm not even sure about the one dude in the top left corner there. I could name all the others, but uh, if you ask most evangelical Christians today whether they're a Catholic or a Protestant, I I would hope most would say Protestant. I I think so. However, they would not be able to give a good answer as to what it actually means to be Protestant. Now, part of the answer is actually found in the word Protestant. In the word Protestant, of course, you find the word protest. But the question is, how many people can answer, well, what am I supposed to be protesting? Hmm, Hmm. good question. And there, there's maybe some brave people out there who would might who might say, "Well, I'm protesting the Catholic Church." Really? And if that, by the way, if that's the best answer you can give, then you're actually unaware of why you're in a battle, and you're un you're you're probably unsure of who the enemy really is. Let me explain. Uh, the term Reformation is the historical name that's given to a period of time that began in the 16th century. So remember Luther nailed uh, the 95 Theses there on that church door in Germany back in 1517. And so there was this cry that went forth in the European church, and the cry was for reform. Of course, the dominant Catholic church at the time was corrupt, Reform, uh, sadly, was not always consistent. (laughs) But I believe the heart of the Reform began with theology. So, uh, you've heard me say it many times, your theology should be driving your methodology. In fact, your theology theology does drive your methodology, and, and that's the main reason why the Catholic system went corrupt, because their theology was wrong. And so out of, out of that time period came the five solas of the Reformation. You'll see a slide here with the five solas, and they're all based on theology, on good theology. And today, la- sorry, last year we looked at the, uh, the, the sola scriptura, which is just scripture alone. Today we'll, we'll look at uh, the solo Christo, or what some other people call the solus Christus, in other words, How are you saved? Well, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You say, well, don't Catholics believe in Christ? Of course they do. Just like they believe in, they have faith, they believe in grace. The key word of the Reformation, though, was sola, only, alone. That's the difference. So I praise God for the Reformation. You say, well, why? Well, one reason is, because it called the church back to faith in Christ as the only mediator between God and man. He is the God-man, and he's the only mediator, the Bible tells us. So you say, is that important? Yeah, because Roman Catholicism taught, and still teaches, that there is a purgatory, and, and that the souls there detained are 
helped by the intercession of the faithful. That's a direct quote from their theology. They also say that saints are to be revered and prayed to. And quote, their relics are to be honored. And on the other hand, you have the reformers who taught that salvation was by Christ's work alone. See, they, they believed in Christ plus other things. And so one of my great heroes of the faith, the reformer John Calvin, said this. By the way, when you're 21, imagine yourself writing a systematic theology book at age 21 called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. What would it say? Would it say anything like this? Because here's a quote from John Calvin, which he wrote to the king of France. He says this, quote, Christ stepped in, took the punishment upon himself, and bore the judgment due to sinners. With his own blood, he paid for the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. We look to Christ alone (laughs) for divine favor and fatherly love. And God's people say, Amen. Truly, truly, I, I agree with that. So, praise God for that wonderful quote. So, we turn to the Bible now, and let's read the words of the living God. And see where the Reformers would get this particular truth we call Solus Christus, Christ alone. I think this is, in my opinion, my humble opinion, the greatest passage on Christ in all the Bible. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Verse 13. As it talks about Christ, it says that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So the proposition from today's text is this, my friends, that God wants you to believe that Christ is supreme. Christ is supreme. We talk about the supremacy of Christ, but what does that actually look look like? In what ways is Christ supreme? I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about what ways is Christ supreme. Number one, Christ is supreme in salvation. He's supreme in salvation. Now, this doesn't mean anything if you don't understand what is mankind's greatest problem. It's not the environment. It's not the economy. Not the government not child poverty or whatever you want to come up with. No, mankind's greatest problem is sin. And therefore, sinners need a Savior. And those two verses there, verses 13 and 14, are presenting to you a very vivid picture of the four saving acts of Christ on our behalf. What did He do? 
He's a doing God. What did he do? Number one, he delivered us. He delivered us. Now that word there means to rescue from danger. The problem is we couldn't deliver ourselves from the greatest problem we have. See, we are guilty, and because we are guilty of being sinners, therefore we stand under the penalty of our sin. But Jesus could and did deliver us. We were in danger of spending eternity apart from God. And so God's judgment was hanging over our heads, but praise God for deliverance. See, Christians have been delivered from the authority of Satan and from the powers of darkness. And if you're a Christian, then you have a new master. You've been made a new creature. You're no longer in that kingdom. You have a new kingdom. And so that's the kind of the idea of this next part here. The, the second thing is that he transferred us. And that word transferred is a wonderful word. It, that word was used to describe the deportation of a population from one country into another country, like, like the Jews going exile over to Babylon, for example. And in relation to Christ's work, he just didn't release you from your bondage and, and leave you there, only just to have you kind of wander around aimlessly, but he actually moved you from the the uh, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light. He made you victor over Satan's kingdom of darkness. The third work here in reference to Christ is that he redeemed us. Verse 14 tells us he redeemed us. It's, uh, that's a, a great theological word. You need to understand what it means, my friends. It, it, it means to redeem means he released a prisoner by the payment of a ransom. Now, there's a question that comes up in theology. That it's this, my friends. Well, who did God pay off? <laughs> who receives the ransom? Who needs to be, to be paid off? And there are some false teachers that suggest that Satan is the one that needed to be paid off. Like he's the one who's, uh, you know, taking you captive. Well, in a sense, he has. But what really happened here, my friends, is it's by his death and resurrection, Jesus met the holy demands of God's law. See, Satan seeks to accuse us and he imprisons us because he knows we're guilty of breaking God's law. But the ransom has been paid on Calvary. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we've been set free. So who gets the ransom? God does. See, you need to be set free from God Himself, really, and His demands and His law. You stand guilty under His law. And so that's the, it's good news here. In verse 14, we see that He has forgiven us. He has forgiven us. Redemption and forgiveness are kind of like two hands going together, intertwining with each other. And the word translated forgiveness means to send away. It means to cancel a debt, like Psalm 103 talks about. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. We had an unpayable debt, which he sent away, and he canceled. And that was before the cancel culture even knew about this. But Christ 
has not only set us free, my friends, it gets even better. He transfers us into a new kingdom, and then He cancels all your debts so that we cannot even be enslaved again. The authorities can't come along and say, hey, you still owe us money. You can't do that. And so now Satan can't find anything. You know, he, he can't find any, any mud to even throw at you to try to stick to you. There, there's nothing in your files. You know, open up your files. Let's see. What can I hold against this Christian? Oh, wow. It says there's a big red stamp on it. It says paid in full. Oh, there's nothing that he can indict us with. And so, my friend, do you believe that Christ is supreme in salvation? You must. It's true. It's good news. But Christ is supreme in other ways. Number two, we see that Christ is supreme in eternity with God the Father. And so, by the way, if you're, if you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus is deity, yeah, there are people who don't believe Jesus is God. This is a great, this whole passage here is, clearly shows that Jesus is God. And, and, and you can see this even in the word image. Because image here in verse 15, it says uh, that he is the image of the invisible God. <laughs> that means that he is the likeness of God. And in fact, we even get the English word icon from this Greek word which refers to things like this Roman coin you see on the screen here. There you go, there you go. You have a likeness. You have an image. You have an icon of Caesar. And uh, it was actually, that, that very word, by the way, was used in Matthew 22 of Caesar's portrait there on the coin. Jesus uses this word. It's used in Revelation 13 of the statue of Antichrist. And so you say, well, when did Christ become the image of God? Well, Christ did not become the image of God at incarnation. Okay, some 2,000 years ago when Jesus takes on bodily human form. That's not when he became the image of God. Hebrews chapter 1 mentions that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. Christ is reflecting God's attributes just as uh, the sun's light is reflecting the sun. He is also said to be the exact representation of God's nature. So that refers to, by the way, an engraving tool or a, a stamp as well. So Jesus, in other words, is the exact likeness of God. Same essence as God the Father. And so according to Philippians 2.6, he is in the very form of God. And that's why Jesus himself could honestly say in John 14, he who has seen me has seen God the Father. So in Christ, the invisible God became visible. And so by using that Greek word for image, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing that Jesus is both the representation as well as the manifestation of God. In other words, He is full, He's final, He is complete in His revelation of God. He's not lacking in any way. He's God in human flesh. And by the way, to think anything less of Him is actually idolatry and blasphemy. 
That's how serious the matter is. And so, Christ is supreme in eternity. And number three, Christ is supreme in creation. He is supreme in creation. That's verses 15 through 17. And and we see this in five different ways. Five ways Christ is supreme in creation. Number one, Christ has supremacy over creation. Why? Because verse 15 tells us He is the firstborn over all creation. Now there's a lot of confusion on this term firstborn, so hang hang with me here. There are people who, uh, uh, false teachers and other sects and so forth, who will, who will take these kind of verses and kind of rip them out of their context and to kind of prove their points that Jesus is not deity. But But those who actually deny the Lord's deity, yeah, sure, they might try to use a phrase like that, but they don't really know what they're talking about. They're ripping it out of its context. They're arguing, and they argue that it speaks of Christ as just being a created being. See, it says He's firstborn. And since He's firstborn, therefore He could not be the eternal God. Well, that interpretation uh, has many problems. It's a misunderstanding of the sense of the, the, the Greek word firstborn. And it's also ignoring the context. Let me explain. The the word firstborn in your Bible there primarily is talking about Christ's position. It's talking about His rank. In both Greek and Jewish culture, by the way, firstborn was the son who had the right of inheritance. It had nothing to do with whether he was born first, last, middle-born. You know, it had nothing to do with chronology. Okay? For example, uh, although Esau was born first chronologically, Esau didn't get the birthright. He, he didn't have the inheritance of the firstborn. You remember it was actually Jacob who was the firstborn and received the inheritance. So such an interpretation of firstborn, by the way, is also foreign to the context both the general context of the epistle itself, as well as the specific context right here in the passage. See, if the Apostle Paul were actually trying to teach that Christ is a created being, then he would be agreeing with the heretics whom he was arguing against. Well, that doesn't make any sense. He wanted to show that Jesus is God, amongst other things, showing He's supreme. That's the whole point of the book of Colossians. See, they taught that Christ was a created being. And that would, of course, run counter to his purpose in writing Colossians. He wanted to refute the false teachers who are at Colossae. By the way, interpreting firstborn to mean that Christ is a creating being here is, is also out of the very harmony of the immediate context. Paul has just finished describing Christ as what? Christ is the perfect and complete image of God. He he just said that. And then in the next verse, Paul's referring to Christ here as the creator of everything that exists in the universe. How could Christ himself be a created thing? And further, you go on to verse 17, it says, He is before all things. So, Christ existed before everything else was created, and only God, of course, existed before the creation. So, there is no way 
the Bible is talking about Christ being a created being. That is not what it's talking about. The, the word itself doesn't prove that. And the context is showing you what the word firstborn is meaning here. So how else does Christ have supremacy over creation? We see in verse 16, He is the Creator. The Creator of the universe is Jesus Christ. And and when you look at the extent of creation, it's dazzling, isn't it? It it, It is awesome in the true sense of the word. Uh, on the screen here, you'll see a PowerPoint slide of our sun and then the, the planets we have in our solar system. Of course, they're not accurate in, in the distances. But I, I just show you that because, well, actually, you can't even see some of them. They're, Earth is so small, it hardly even shows up. That little blue dot up there, the third one is supposed to be where you live. And it's important that you you look at this sort of thing and do what Psalm 19 says. Let the heavens declare the glory of God. You you look at the wonderful gift the Creator has given us and don't worship the gift. You worship the Creator. (laughs) You should. By the way, notice in the text it says that creation doesn't just include visible things like the sun and the planets and so forth, the things you can see. It includes the invisible things, verse 16 says. So you say, what invisible things might that be? Well, that would probably include the angels as an example. It seems to be talking about angels here when it, when it mentions the thrones and the dominions, the rulers and authorities. So Christ is supreme over creation because He is the Creator. He's the one who made all the stuff. But number three, Christ is supremacy over creation because everything was created for Him. Not for you, for Him. In other words, Christ is the end. Christ is the goal. Everything began with Him, and guess what? It's all going to end with Him, too. All things spring forth at His command. All things are going to return at His command. The Bible tells us that Christ is the beginning and He is the end. And guess what? One day, everything is going to give glory to Him. The glory that He deserves. I look forward to that day. Number four, Christ has supremacy over creation because He is before all things. That's what verse 17 says. In other words, here's the idea, my friends. He's the beginning. If He's before all things, then He's the beginning. So when the universe began, Christ already existed. He wasn't born just 2,000 years ago. He was, <laughs> he's been around for all eternity. And so the prophet Micah in chapter 5 says this, His goings forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. A clear statement of His deity. And then in Revelation 22, look what Jesus says about Himself. That Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. and He's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, He is before all things. He, he, he is eternity. 
Number five, Christ has supremacy over creation because He holds all things together. Again, verse 17 tells us that. So not only did Christ create the universe, but He is the sustainer of the universe. And the Greek word, by the way, for hold there, in your text, is perfect tense. Perfect tense. And that just tells you that Christ continues to do this and He will always continue to hold things together. He's doing it now. He did it then. And He's going to continue to do this into the future. That's good news. Because notice I put something, a little picture on the screen here of an atom. Because this tells us, because the whole universe is made up of these atoms, right? And molecules and so forth, all these electrons and protons and neutrons in the in there. And so the idea here is that apart from Christ continually and actively holding that together, we're in trouble. Because you know what happens when atoms start splitting and start flying around doing random stuff? It's not good. Just go to Hiroshima or Nagasaki, Japan, and you'll see what atoms just kind of flying around and not being in an organized fashion. What happens? It's very destructive. So Christ maintains this delicate balance here that is necessary for life. He is the power behind every force in the universe. So that includes gravity. He's in charge of gravity. Uh, The centrifugal force, the energy of the universe, is not something mystical. Uh, Okay, (laughs) we're not talking pantheism here, okay? But but he's the one who holds it together. In fact, listen to um, Dr. Chestnut wrote a book called The Atom Speaks. He describes the puzzle of why an atom holds together. Very interesting. Here's what he says. Quote, on the screen for you. Consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he had now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, and eight with no charge. Earlier, physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other, and unlike magnetic poles attract each other. The entire history of electrical phenomena had been built upon these principles known as Coulomb's Law of Electrostatic Force and the Law of Magnetism. What was wrong? What holds the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? Therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? What's the answer? Verse 17, Christ holds it together. All the atoms in the universe are held together by Christ. Incredible. And so, my friend, do you realize you live in a world in which practically every object, including your own body, is a potential nuclear explosion. The chair you sit on, your body, your glasses, 
right? Your book, everything in this universe is a potential nuclear explosion unless you believe in verse 17. And one day, the Bible tells us that God will actually dissolve the nuclear force. Christ will take his thoughts off the atoms in this universe and change his thoughts toward those atoms. Because look what 2 Peter chapter 3 says. 2 Peter 3.10 says, The heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Giant nuclear explosion. <laughs> a great heat. And so, the good news is you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> right? Please don't go and build a bunker in your backyard or some strange thing like that. You don't have to worry about that because without Christ's power holding all things together, yes, atoms are going to fly apart and it will be destructive. But the universe is held together by Christ. It's not going to explode until this day. And so until that time, I can, we can thank Christ that He upholds all things by the word of His power. Hebrews 1 tells us. So, you say, what's the point of all this? What, what is this telling us? It, it's telling us that Christ has to be God. Who else can do this? No one else can do that. Christ is supreme in so many ways. He is supreme in creation. And number four, Christ is supreme in the church. He's supreme in the church, verse 18 tells us. And the text here in verse 18 is telling us Four great truths about Christ's relation to the church. Who is Jesus Christ? You want to know? Look at verse 18. Because number one, we see that Christ is the head of the church. That means He holds the chief position. He is the highest rank in the church. There, there's no one higher than Christ. Now there's many metaphors used in Scripture to describe the church. And they're all helpful. But I think probably the most profound metaphor is this one that it talks about the church as a body. The church is a body, and Christ is the head of this body. And this concept is not used in the sense of some company. So please don't think of some business company where you know, you've, you've got this huge hierarchy, and at the head you have a CEO or whatever. That's not what it's talking about. The, the, the church is a living organism inseparably tied together by someone who is alive, the living Christ. He's the one who controls every part of it. He's the one who gives life to this living organism. He's the one who's giving direction to this living organism. His life should be lived out amongst the members of this body. And hopefully, that, if that's the case, it provides unity to the body. It will. So he's energizing. He's the one coordinating all the diversity within the body. It's a beautiful picture, beautiful metaphor when you understand it. So he's the head of the church. Number two, Christ is the source of the church. Now that, that word beginning, so not only is he head of the church, he's the beginning. So that word beginning is used here in a twofold sense. So it's talking about source as well as Christ's supremacy. The church, of course, has its origins in Christ. It's He who gives life 
to his church. It was his sacrificial death and resurrection on our behalf that provides that new life. And so that makes him the beginning. It makes him the originator of the church. Without Christ, there is no church. Now, obviously, Christ was not the first person to be raised from the dead, because it says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Sorry, that's the third point. I just skipped your third point. Uh, So not only is he the uh, source, number three is that he is the firstborn from the dead. As verse 18 says, now some people scratch their heads at this and they they know their Bibles and they're like, wait a minute, I, I know there were people who were resurrected before Christ was. That's true. But here's the point. It's not a chronological thing, firstborn, remember? It has to do with your importance. There's a hierarchy here, a ranking going on. He's the most important person to have, have ever been resurrected from the dead. Without his resurrection, there could be no resurrection for others. Read 1 Corinthians 15. So of all the people who have ever been raised from the dead, here's the point, my friend. Christ is the highest in rank. He is the most important one to ever come out of the grave. Without his resurrection, there'd be no hope of a resurrection for us. Praise God for that. So who is Christ? Number four, Christ is the preeminent one. The idea here is he has first place in the church. And hopefully he has first place in your life. Does he? Is he preeminent in your life? Now, he, he gets to that position. He earns that position because of his death and resurrection, as it's talked about here. And so, as a result of his death and resurrection, then Jesus has come to have first place in everything. In all parts of your life. Not just the church. But the passage doesn't end there. It goes on to give us a, a a fifth way that Christ is supreme. He is supreme in reconciliation. Reconciliation. That's a key word there in verses 19 and 20. He reconciles. And he's able to do that because of who he is. Look what verse 19 says. Because verse 19 tells us that Christ is all we need. He's all we need. You say, Why? Because verse 19 says, For in Him all the fullness, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So we have all of God's fullness in Jesus Christ. And that means there's no need for you to add anything to Jesus' person nor His work. And there's where Catholicism gets it really wrong. Very wrong. See, Catholicism, their theology teaches about Christ. The problem is it's Christ plus, you know, your good works and, you know, your other stuff, right? And so once it's Christ plus anything else, you're in big trouble. You're lost. You're condemned. And so you have to believe that that Christ is full and there is no need for anything to be added to the person and work of Christ. And so since His person is sufficient, we have the fullness of God in Christ. Well, what does that mean about then His work? Well, that means His work is also sufficient, and that's what verse 20 
reminds us about, his work is sufficient. And you might say, well, then what did Christ actually accomplish? Well, number two, here's what he accomplished. Christ made peace between God and mankind. What was inseparable comes together because of Christ. Well, how does that happen? Well, let let me use Martin Luther to kind of help explain how this happened. See, one of the great reformers wanted peace desperately. It was the longing of his heart to have peace. And by 1511, Martin Luther's deep awareness of his sin and of God's holiness was driving him to confession sometimes six hours a day. His poor confessor was was getting fed up with listening to Martin Luther's sins for six hours a day. It was driving him crazy. And and, uh, it was at one point the, the, the guilt just wouldn't go away. He felt this huge gap between a holy God and a sinful being. And the monk once wept. He said, love God? I hate him! (laughs) So what do you do with a monk who hates God and he's going to the confession booth six hours a day? What do you do? Well, you you kick him out of the monastery and you, you, you send him to go study the Bible at a university. That's what you do. Makes sense, right? That's what they did. So they sent him off to Wittenberg, Germany, uh, to, to, the, to the Wittenberg University to study the Bible. But one question haunted poor Martin. How can anyone please a righteous God? He wanted to. He wanted to please this righteous holy God, but he just didn't know how to do that. And so as God providentially designed it for Martin, he was studying here in Romans. He came to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, And the phrase just nails him. The righteousness of God. He didn't like that at first. (laughs) In fact, that, that phrase tormented him at first. Well, praise God for using a guy named Erasmus, who wrote the Greek New Testament, whom Luther was studying. And so Martin found his answer right there in Erasmus' Greek New Testament. And he's reading Paul's epistle to the Romans, and he realized this word righteousness here means not only the condition of being righteous as God is, which he knew I could never attain that, but he realized it was the act of declaring someone to be righteous. There's the answer. There's where the peace lies. So God is not only righteous, but you mean... God's able to give me His righteousness, which I need, I'm so desperately in need of? Yes, absolutely. God can give righteousness to sinners. And this righteousness is something that Luther recognized he couldn't earn it. He could never earn it. It was a free gift that God gave to him. It's given to every person who trusts Christ. And so for years, Martin Luther had searched For peace. And in the end, guess what? Peace found him. Or should I say God found him. And so in the year 1517, Martin's peace in the truth actually became an explosive passion for the truth. And then he had the audacity to go nail 95 arguments on a church door 
which lit the bomb. He didn't mean to do that, but it lit the bomb that just exploded Europe. It rocked all of Europe. So what's the answer, my friends? How can a holy God then be reconciled with sinful people? You can't do it on your own. Verse 20 reminds you that that it's through Christ that you're reconciled to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven. How did He do that? By making peace by the blood of His cross. Now this is important. Is God able to lower His standard to come down to you? Does He throw out His law so that there can be reconciliation? No. Does, oh, I know. Some people think God just closes His eyes. You know, like sometimes mothers do to their sons. Like, oh, I'm not seeing this. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely not seeing this because if I do, then I have to do something about it. No, that's not what He does. Oh, I know. Some people think God compromises with mankind. No, He doesn't do that. He can't. My friends, if God did any of those things, the universe would fall to pieces. God has to be consistent with Himself. He is consistent with His own nature and essence. And and He maintains His holy law. But the good news is there's somebody who has kept the law for you. There is someone who's done what you could never do. And then that person makes himself your mediator. And so because Jesus Christ is God and He's able to do what no mere man could ever do, then He is now able to do this reconciliation work. He reconciles lost sinners to a holy God. May I remind you how He did this? He made peace by the blood of His cross. Now, don't get weird on the blood, right? The, 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 you know, there, some people say, well, you know, let's collect the blood in some, some chalice or whatever, you know. You know, we've got to drink this blood and do all this. People get weird on that. But my friends, you may not have the literal blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter. But you have his death. <laughs> you have his sacrificial atonement on your behalf. And that is received by faith alone. See, the five solas, it's salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so by dying and paying sin's penalty, Christ is the one who is now supreme in this reconciliation process. And if there is to be reconciliation between mankind and God, well then guess who is the initiator? The initiative and the action has to come from God. It it is in Christ that God was reconciled to man. But it was not the incarnation of Christ that accomplished this reconciliation. And by the way, it's not His good example either. (laughs) It wasn't just because Christ came and lived amongst us for 30 plus years. If that's all He ever did, we're still lost. Because it is by His blood, it's by His sacrificial death that we are reconciled. It's through His death that peace was made possible between God and mankind. And so this is why we must believe that Christ is supreme. Salvation is in Christ alone. It's not Christ plus anything else. And so my friend, do you believe this truth? It it, it was 
one of the major dividing lines between Catholicism and Protestantism. I hope you believe this. You must believe that salvation is in Christ alone. He is supreme in all of these ways. May God enable you to believe this and live it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this greatest gift in your Son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful that our greatest problem has been dealt with on the cross. And that there is such a thing as forgiveness of sins and our guilt and our and our shame and our condemnation can be removed. And now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May everybody here understand and believe this truth. May they believe that Christ is supreme in all of these ways. May they take this personally. Not, not just for the church in general or the, the, uh, the universe in general, but for them personally. May they believe this personally. Enable us to believe this. And then to act upon this. May we not succumb to guilt and shame and pressure outside pressures. May we not add anything to the person and work of Christ. Forgive us when we attempt to do that. May, may we understand the seriousness when we do that. And forgive us of our sins. May we fully trust in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.